This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. We're having a crisis both internationally and inside our democracy, and the war on journalism and the war on truth is part of it. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Iran, North Korea, China, and Russia are just a few of the international issues to dominate the headlines this year. But it remains to be seen just how much of a factor they will be in next year's presidential election. On July 23, 2019, the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative hosted a panel discussion with three journalists to talk about foreign policy and security issues in campaign 2020. Joining me for the conversation were Susan Glasser, a staff writer at The New Yorker, Jennifer Griffin, national security correspondent for Fox News Channel, and Laura Seligman, Pentagon correspondent for foreign policy. This event was made possible through support from City. Let's start with, I guess, an obvious question. How much of a role are foreign policy and national security expected to play in campaign 2020, which I guess is, even if not officially underway, it's technically underway? Well, I'll, I'll start just because I'm sitting right here. <laughs> and um, I think what is always surprising to me is how little foreign policy is talked about on the campaign trail. You have, and I was just going through the list of the 20 plus Democratic candidates, and it's very hard to distinguish between the candidates' positions. And in fact, some of their positions are Donald Trump's positions. And what I thought was interesting is they're all talking about ending the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Well, that seems uh, kind of interesting because what you saw yesterday sitting in the White House is President Trump um, sitting with the Pakistani Prime Minister uh, is talking about that very same thing. So we haven't heard enough of a uh, differentiation. There's certainly a sense that all of the Democratic candidates are coming out wanting to say we have to get back to normal, we have to get back to normal relations. But if we look at what just happened tonight, Boris Johnson just took over as Prime Minister in England. What is that going to mean in terms of a UK relationship? He's closer to Trump than he is to uh, a President Biden, for instance. So I think it's always amazing that given that a president has um, the one area that a president can actually influence or, or take executive action and is in foreign policy, we don't hear enough about it. Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, in many ways the conventional wisdom, you know, certainly used to be and probably will be again this year that the less you talk about foreign policy, the better it is for actually America's foreign policy uh, to talk about it on the campaign trail. Uh, there's a sense that, uh, you know, first of all, most presidents find that when they come to office, uh, their ideas and their campaign rhetoric collide with reality. And, you know, you have pretty sharp pivots, generally speaking. Uh, you know, you had George W. Bush who came and uh, thought that uh, Bill Clinton was wildly unrealistic when it came to dealing with Russia and he'd made a terrible mistake in personalizing the relationship. And then, of course, what happened? President Bush came, he met Vladimir Putin, looked into his soul, personalized the relationship all over again. And of course, there's numerous examples, Democrats and Republicans. So, you know, certainly in the old days, uh, you know, of circa, say, four years ago, uh, the view was that it was much safer not to talk about foreign policy on the campaign trail from the point of view of uh, 
America's actual foreign policy. Now, interestingly, I would say that you know Donald Trump, you know, upended that uh, conventional wisdom along with many other conventional wisdoms four years ago. If you look at his campaign, he actually talked a lot uh, about his pretty sharply different view of the world than the uh, view of the national security establishment in both parties. Of course, Trump has very much been at odds with what had been the Republican foreign policy uh, consensus for many years, as well as the Democratic foreign policy consensus. So I guess my question, as we are at the very beginning of this 2020 race, is the extent to which we are going to see Democrats begin to reflect and to begin to have a conversation about what the world after Trump really looks like. Is this a definitive break that we've seen, uh, you know, regardless of whether they agree or disagree with Trump's policies? Uh, I think the interesting question is, uh, will Joe Biden's point of view win the day, which is essentially, hey world, we'll be back. Uh, and in fact, I was in Munich at the annual Munich Security Conference earlier this year, and that was literally the speech that Joe Biden gave uh, at the Munich Security Conference, which was, uh, you know, hold on to your seats, world, uh, you know, we're, we're coming back. And then there's a new generation, I think, of Democrats, and we're just getting the first inklings who are saying, no, uh, you know, it, it's, it's going to be a different world after Trump. Laura? Yeah, definitely. I think that... It certainly is a whole new world right now. I think that President Trump has really, since his campaign, really upended the way that campaigns and foreign policy is run. Right from the beginning, he was, he was talking about foreign policy a lot. And to the surprise of many of the people who elected him and lawmakers alike, he actually followed through with many of his foreign policy promises, which often, as you know, candidates will make these promises and then turn around and do something completely different, as President Obama has done. So it's a whole new world. One thing I really found interesting in the most recent Democratic debates, they were asked what the biggest, the greatest national security threat to the United States is. And none of them agreed. They all had different answers. Some of them said China, some of them said Russia. Um, some of them even said climate change. I think someone said Donald Trump. Um, so it's interesting that there is not a consensus right now on what should be the greatest threat going forward. And I think there's a lot of room for discussion. Um, I think also to echo Jen's point, um, the Democrats are in a very strange position right now of um, they have to walk this fine line between breaking with the and, and distinguishing themselves from what Trump has said about getting drawing down Americans, getting out of the forever war, um, and and not alienating uh, some of their democratic base as well. So they're walking this very they're in this awkward position and walking this very fine line there. Um, so it, we're still early early days. None of these campaigns have really laid out a detailed blueprint for their foreign policy, even. Uh, Vice President Biden, which was very surprising to me that his foreign policy speech did not really have very many specifics in it. Um, they just all say they hate Trump's foreign policy and everything about Trump. So I think they really have to lay out their vision for what the world will be after Trump. Well, I also think that if you look at the news of the day, right, to the, this last week, Iran has sort of taken over the headlines in terms of um, international relations and crisis. 
And if you look at what the Democrats, many of them have laid out, most of them say they would get back into the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, they would like to re-enter that. But what nobody's taking account of is that Iran has moved on, Iran is moving on. Things will have changed so much in the next year and a half uh, that think, I think the world is just moving at a pace and it's being led by very radical forces, strong men are in the, and it's mostly men who are in positions of power, and they are negotiating person to person, cutting side deals. It's much more of a, I think what we're seeing is the global order, of course, is not just fraying because of Trump, but it was eroding uh, anyway. And so all of these multilateral institutions that uh, people like Joe Biden grew up with and want to go back to and return to and work through NATO and through the UN, who knows what condition they'll be in at the end of the day? Well, I think, look, there's a huge difference between four years of the situation we're in and eight years. And I think, you know, while it's true that you've seen a longer term erosion of American power and of these institutions when it comes to, uh, you know, essentially the rise not only of China but other powers, you just see the relative decline, which was inevitable. Uh, for American power and leadership in the world, regardless of who was president. However, there are specific decisions uh, which 100% uh, depend on President Trump having come in and essentially pursued uh, an anti-Obama policy. So the uh, nuclear deal, in fact, is actually a great example of that, right, in the sense that uh, for one year, it was one year ago and a change that Trump unilaterally withdrew from this deal, which was negotiated not only with Iran, but with uh, five of the world's other leading powers. They have essentially all agreed to remain in this deal. And it's only now, after more than a year, with the effects of economic pressure and new sanctions from the US, that Iran has begun to take sort of calibrated steps outside of it. Our European partners, along with Russia and China, have remained in it. If you think that Trump is going to lose, then you might be able to wait it out. Uh, it's not going to survive six years. But uh, will so it even, but Susan, will it even survive one year with Boris Johnson taking over? Right. They are holding a UK yeah. tanker, oil tanker right now. They've tried to take two more in the That's last right. few days. How much is the British public going to stand for staying in the nuclear deal? I just, I think what we are seeing is all of these assumptions of candidates who are putting together their policy positions, they're all gonna be outdated by the time they actually hit the campaign. Yeah, trail. no, I totally agree with that. I think the question is what kind of a calculation are other world leaders going to make about whether they think that Trump is going to be reelected. Until recently, I think they thought there was a, a decent chance that Trump would lose. I, I see the Iranians and others actually starting perhaps to think more seriously about what a Trump second term would look like. And I think that's going to be a dynamic that exists at the exact same time as these candidates start to formulate their foreign policy worldviews as well. Well, it also, it, it, while it is true that the candidates did say they wanted to get back into the JCPOA, they did not want to get back into the same JCPOA that President Obama signed. They want some changes made to it. I think they want, and, and it certainly could be a stronger deal. It could be, I think they want it to cover the ballistic missiles. They want it to cover Iran sponsoring terrorism around the world, the malign activities that uh, the U.S. loves to talk about. So I and think- we'll talk about those in a bit. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. So I think that there is, there's a lot of room um, for negotiations here. And I think that, like you said, Iran and other leaders around the world are looking um, 
at the possibility that Trump does get reelected. And I think that may be part of the reason why Iran is continuing to do some of the things that it's doing in the Gulf, because they know that their only option in terms of getting sanctions relief really is through their European through the Europeans that are still in the deal. So, you know, squeezing oil prices, doing these kinds of things in the Gulf, they're hoping to get some sanctions relief. But it's then why would you provoke Britain if you wanted to, to create a divide between the US and Europe? It, I, it doesn't look like the Iranians are really thinking very strategically. And do you guys think that because of the events, and we've only talked about Iran, we haven't gotten to North Korea, China, Russia, global migration, immigration, Venezuela, any of those <laughs> other hot spots where there are- Good thing are, we don't have anything to talk about. <laughs> I didn't, I, going into this, I did not know what we were gonna discuss. Uh, but do you think that just because of the one issue that we've talked about here and everything else that's stacking up, um, this, this election could come down to being about foreign policy, national security, and what the world looks like, or at least what people may think it may look like over the next four years. Well, I think that one area in particular that will get a lot of attention is China. And that's an area that is really um, where these two economic and trade and foreign policy really come together with a lot of other really interesting things like technology, for example. and. Um, President Trump has made China obviously a big priority with the trade war, but not just the trade war, it's the US military is also taking note of what China is doing in the South China Sea and, and really spreading their influence everywhere, not just with building up military capabilities, but also debt diplomacy and uh, corrupt economic practices. Um, so I think that this is one of the few areas where these two distinct things might overlap, and I think that the 2020 candidates may need to start talking about China from both a foreign policy and an economic policy Although, perspective. I would caution you that, you know, we're still, obviously, we're not even in 2020 yet, but um, this is an area where, a, there's, to a certain extent, there's a little bit more consensus, right? You have Democrats and Republicans kind of reevaluating, which in a way makes it less of a good uh, election issue. And then there's, of course, there's the really, I think, uh, there's two issues and two ways you might see Democrats start to talk more about foreign policy. The first is pretty obviously kind of classic, what's Trump's record? He doesn't have a great record so far. And so he's talked in pretty sweeping terms. He's alarmed uh, a lot of the world. He's you know, caused a great uncertainty about what is actually America's foreign policy at this moment in time. Uh, and yet, you know, he's essentially kind of opened up uh, a lot of questions surrounding our relationship with China, our relationship uh, toward uh, European powers. He's suggested that he's going to revise in a way that, that could ultimately be good, but has yet to produce results when it comes to bad actors in the world like Iran, North Korea, Venezuela. He's, he's signaled, in other words, uh, sharp disjunctures in our policy, but he hasn't produced results yet with China very much uncertainty uh, around his policy of tariffs and whether that's going to produce uh, a new economic deal with the Chinese, and if so, what, uh, what is the nature of it, uh, the unapproved trade deal uh, so far with Mexico and Canada, 
Uh, is that going to get through Congress or not? So we don't really know what the record is he's running on. I, I suspect you will see Democrats make a strong argument that he has not, he's been all talk and no action, that he's better at breaking deals and withdrawing deals from deals like the uh, Iran nuclear accord or the Paris agreement that he is at making them. So that's one aspect, which is the record and whether it'll be critiqued. That's a pretty standard uh, thing. Then I think you're going to see one other bucket that's even more Trump-specific, right? Any president would face scrutiny over uh, you know, what does he actually produce with his foreign policy. Trump, I think, opens up a new line that's quite interesting, which is almost a values argument when it comes to the world. Jen alluded to a little bit, uh, but you know, the president of the United States uh, lavishing dictators with praise is not something that any of us are used to. Uh, and uh, you know we've had many policy debates in this country over the last several decades about how to deal with North Korea's nuclear program or uh, Iranian bad actions uh, in the Middle East, right? That's, that's not something that's a new debate. It is, in fact, something that is fundamentally new, which is to have a president who not only doesn't make human rights a, a pillar of his policy, again, we've had presidents like that in both parties, uh, including arguably Barack Obama, uh, but we've never had a president who seemed to have a marked preference for dictators and authoritarians. And I think that you will see and already do see Democrats making essentially a values argument around Trump and connecting it with the domestic argument about uh, his views on the rule of law, his attacks on the independent press and the like. So I would think that's something for those of you who are interested just in how foreign policy c connects with our domestic politics, that that's something I would expect and, and we're already seeing. Well, what I think is interesting, I think if you polled any voter, whether it's Republican or Democrat right now, very few would put China at the top of their list of what they're voting about. Maybe you will have some farmers who've been hit by tariffs out in the Midwest who might change their vote and be annoyed that they're losing mm -hmm. their crops because of um, tariffs. And, uh, and maybe some of the workers will uh, be happy that there are these tariffs because they feel like China's just been been selling these products and uh, and competing, you know, in unfair terms, maybe. But I think for the most part, if you try to talk about what's happening in the South China Sea, forget about it. There's not a single voter in this country who's really concerned about that. Um, and so the problem is, as I've watched Trump. President Trump from the Pentagon and from the perspective of the military and wondering at what point does he lose some military support or and I'm not seeing I'm not seeing his strong support erode either within the military and even when he does things that I think are counterproductive to what our military values. I'm not seeing, uh, I think Democrats are going to try to tap into this issue of American values and leadership, but I also think it's a very unnerving world right now. I think they see, I think voters on both sides see a lot of uh, ungovernable countries, basket cases that they're tired of hearing about, feeling that America can't fix everything in the world. I've started to notice, even on our own network, there is a much more pacifist group of uh, opinion uh, uh, people who um, anchor some of our shows who are more in the opinion side of the, the news division than I am who are really, people are fed up with wars. The, the, all of the tectonic plates have shifted, and I think 
when President Trump talks about Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin, I think as time has gone by, I'm seeing more people say, well, nothing else has worked. Nothing else has worked with Putin. Nothing else has worked with Kim Jong-un. What's wrong with him walking across the line into North Korea becoming? The things that used to horrify the foreign policy establishment, is not, they're not horrifying voters. Well, if I could just make one point, because I think Jen has raised a really interesting dynamic, which is we, we started out talking about the Democratic foreign policy debate. But the truth is the Republican foreign policy debate uh, was never resolved in 2016. And you know, Trump won. And so he came into office, but as we've seen with the incredible turnover inside his government, there's continued to be essentially a war within the Republican Party. You could sum it up, and I'm more able to say this than Jen is, but it's the, <laughs> it's the Tucker Carlson versus the Sean Hannity primary that is still taking place, you know, four years after Trump won election. And of course, that's true inside his own government. He's on his third national security advisor, his second secretary of state. Uh, he recently overruled both his Secretary of State and his National Security Advisor in refusing to take uh, a more aggressive response to the Iranian shootdown of a drone. And so, you know, you have a situation where it's unresolved, and that's why I said there's also this enormous uncertainty that exists both inside the United States and, of course, internationally as well as to what is our policy. Because the answer is, is that we don't really have one in many of these key areas. We have presidential instincts. We have uh, the records instincts and actual words and actions of our uh, foreign policy and national security uh, apparatus, our bureaucracies. Uh, and then we have the political conversation that swirls around them, and, and those are not the same thing. You could take any of these issues, in fact, whether it's Russia, Syria, uh, Iran, uh, Middle East peace, uh, not even putting aside the whole question of you know, trade and our economic policy, and you actually really can't answer in a very specific way. You can find evidence to support different interpretations, uh, but you really can't give one definitive answer. And will that be a part of the broader kind of political debate in 2020, which goes to uh, the president's, call it unconventional, call it something more uh, style of governing, uh, but you know, chaos and uncertainty by the world's leading superpower in the past has not been seen as a, either a national or a political asset. It may or may not have any direct impact. Uh, you know, to Jen's point, his supporters remain his supporters and you know, pulling back, you know, not just on foreign policy, you've got to say probably the most remarkable thing is that if you just looked at opinion polls, over the last few years of the president's approval rating, you would think nothing had happened in the world because they're basically, it's a straight line. Mm -hmm. If I could play devil's advocate because uh, uh, you were talking about the president's foreign policy and his voters will, would say to you, he has had some successes in the foreign policy space. They would point to, he pulled out of the Paris climate mm -hmm. change agreement. He pulled out of JCPOA. He moved the embassy from Tel Aviv um, to Jerusalem. Uh, and recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And I think that you may hear those kinds of arguments put forth as the campaign moves forward. Right. Well, I would say it's if you don't believe that climate change is a national security issue, although uh, our leading intelligence agencies and the Pentagon have said that it is a very serious both national and international threat. If you, if you agree with President Trump on the political uh, point of view that climate change is not a global problem that the United States needs to make a 
pillar of its foreign policy, then you could say, well, he's followed through on his campaign promise to pull out of the Paris Climate Accords. But I think it would be hard to argue that that's a success, that's, that's following through on a piece of campaign rhetoric. Same thing with Iran. Uh, the question would be, now, the president said that the Iran nuclear deal was the worst deal ever. Uh, and there are many critics in both the Democratic and Republican Party who think uh, you know, there are many troubling aspects that weren't resolved by that deal, right? Um, the missile a success. The one. President of the United States would have a success if he were able to produce a different outcome. He has not done that. So I don't think it's going to be enough to say that unilaterally ripping up a piece of paper uh, it's pretty hard to run on that as a, as a success. You could say, uh, I've achieved a different negotiation. And in fact, that does seem to be what the president wants to do, is to actually sit down and talk with the Iranians. Uh, I think many of his advisors inside the administration are quite worried about that, because uh, it's going to be pretty hard to get a better deal than Obama and all the world's other powers achieved, especially since you've just ripped up the previous deal. Uh, and so why would anyone negotiate with us? That's very true. Uh, let's shift the conversation a bit to the misinformation, disinformation, malign influence efforts. Uh, FBI Director Christopher Wray said today in testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee that um, Russia is intent on interfering in the 2020 election. Um, does the media have a particular responsibility in what it covers and what it presents as information to make sure that it's not, the information that's being put out there is not something that is intended um, to divide or to misinform people. Uh, because a lot of things in 2016 were reported that you know had its basis in some of the malign efforts. Well, I think the obvious answer is yes, the media does. And I think what is different about 2016 is that uh, journalists themselves, news organizations, are aware now uh, that of what Russia was up to, what they are capable of, but also what other groups, because it's not just Russia that is going to be trying to interfere. I am noticing numerous countries, particularly in the Middle East, who are um, trying to influence our election and debates and, and policy decisions. So the question is, how are news organizations fighting back against this? I think the problem is that it's not just news organizations, traditional news organizations that are the problem, but it's the platforms like Facebook and Twitter, and they have still not done enough to stop the kind of fake news that gets into the bloodstream. Um, I see it on a daily basis, and I often say uh, to people that at this point, after 11 years at the Pentagon, I spend more time keeping news off the air than getting news on the air, because <laughs> it is a constant onslaught of slightly believable but fake pieces of information that either come through Twitter or come through a newspaper overseas that then gets picked up by a legitimate news organization that we, in real time, are trying to track down. The only people I know who are successful successfully uh, debunking at least videos that are out there that are fake is a group called Storyful that is up in uh, in New York. It was started by a former CNN producer. Uh, it, as it was bought by actually Rupert Murdoch. Uh, and it Storyful is verifying in real time videos that come from overseas 
And it's just one small effort that is successful in terms of trying to get some of the fake uh, videos that are out there off like out of the bloodstream. The but ocean. it's but it's small, and I don't know how they even you know I don't know how they're doing what they're doing as it is because they're very effective. But what are we going to do about deep fake videos when they start showing candidates saying things that they never said? Um, it is, we're in for, we're far from through, I mean, 2016 will just be the beginning, the first chapter in this, um, because I think the Russians realized how, how easy it was to divide us using our own institutions. Mm -hmm. and, and the scary thing really is also what is, has been happening to journalism itself over the past 10 years or so. We have a lot more um, of, the, of the legacy people who really know their beats leaving journalism. We have a lot younger people coming in who don't really know anything about that their beats, they're, they're thrown in. And these are very well-meaning, good young people, but often their editors will ask them for, they want clicks, right? So they'll ask them to sensationalize a story. They'll put a different headline on a story than what you know one of us would have put on it. And in, often these journalists, these young journalists are under so much pressure and they see something on Twitter and they say, oh, that looks right. And then they write a story about it. And that is one way that some of this misinformation gets, gets around the internet because you see something and it's a ripple effect and no one takes the time to actually fact check it and then it becomes the truth. Well, I think those are all really important points, uh, and it's it's true that I think we will look back on this as, uh, sadly, early days of this problem. But you know, just to step back even more, right? You know, you Russia didn't create our internal divisions; they were extremely successful at uh, amplifying them and exacerbating them, and, and they operated essentially in concert and in a positive feedback loop uh, with with a campaign in this country and. Uh, you know, that is something we just, we haven't seen before. It, it's something that the tools and techniques exist, but it also comes at the moment of an, a, essentially an, a systematized assault on our institutions, right? We're, we're dealing with a broader crisis of confidence in our institutions, including the media. Uh, and of course, in that sense, we've also never had a president who's gone to war against truth and against facts, and why does that matter? Because at a moment in time when you have the President of the United States sitting next to the Prime Minister of Pakistan, and what were they doing yesterday? They were commiserating about the evil media, and actually President uh, Trump had an incredible exchange with Imran Khan, who at that moment had banned his chief uh, opposition uh, figure from having her interview in the media in Pakistan, Televised, the main opposition network was pulled off the air for his visit to the United States of America. What did the President of the United States do? He said, oh, you don't have it nearly as bad as I do. The media here is much worse than anything you could have. This would never happen in any situation ever before in this country, okay? You don't have the President of the United States, regardless of what party he's coming from, commiserating with an authoritarian leader of a country that is coming to us seeking aid, seeking to cooperate with us, and complaining about fake news. And as we go forward into the election, again, you have a very divided government. You have people inside our national security establishment who take the threat of international interference in our domestic politics very seriously. In fact, just a couple of days ago, you had the director of national intelligence 
announced that he was appointing uh, essentially an, an election czar, a deputy uh, uh, director of national intelligence who was going to be in charge of overseeing election security uh, looking into 2020. That's exactly what the experts, it's exactly what uh, the very nonpartisan infrastructure uh, of our national security establishment has asked for. Well, what's the big picture context is that the president's about to fire uh, the DNI because he doesn't see him as really being uh, on the president's team. I was just about to ask if you thought that, that the elections are, so to speak, would make a difference at all. Will it? Or is it just another drop no, in it's a... It's awfully late in the day no, to be yeah. appointing an election czar. Two years into, you know. It, it's, um, we talk a lot about Russia because that's, you know, what the inte intelligence community found. They're the people that they were called out. Um, but there are other actors, other countries who are in this space, uh, China being one. Uh, I read just recently about China's influence or attempted influence in the Taiwanese elections. Uh, and Australia. And, and Australia. So are we, while we should focus on Russia, should we also be giving equal time, um, no pun intended, uh, to others who are in this game? Because it's not just Russia. And different countries have different motives for wanting to influence an American election. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. And again, you come, you come with this, uh, I mean, it's really almost an unwinnable situation. Essentially, it, it's, it's, it's perpetually asymmetric. Uh, you know, North Korea is, is a hacking superpower, and yet it's a country where they can't have lights on at night. Uh, you know, you, so you have North Korea, you have Iran, China, any country, anyone has the tools and capabilities to influence this. Uh, uh, you know, global jihadist communities. Uh, you know, the, the list is as endless as the number of groups and interests in the world. We haven't figured out how to deal with it uh, just as a general matter. And then as a specific matter, you have the, it seems to me, the real um, uh, gap between whatever our stated policies are, whatever our capabilities, which are considerable uh, when it comes to, as a tactical matter, we have a lot of capabilities. But do we have policies? You know, we are a divided country. We're a country uh, where the president speaks for a minority of the people, a, mon a minority uh, that is fixed, loud, and angry, but does not represent uh, 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 the way that the country has agreed to go forward. He doesn't have a consensus within his own administration, in particular on many of these foreign issues. So I think it's very hard uh, to imagine that we're going to suddenly get our act together. The president, uh, as you see with this testimony this week, he views conversation around election security as uh, an implicit questioning of the legitimacy of his, his victory in 2016. And so that also, of course, has, has hampered the um, ability to talk about it. I yep. will say that, sorry, Lara. Um, I will say that before Jim Mattis left uh, his position as defense secretary, he did quietly set up, uh, authorize um, US Cyber Command at the NSA to uh, essentially protect the elections. And so there are units there that are working very actively to, um, to sort of take down the Russian bots that, that and, and target the St. Petersburg group. Uh, there, he also set up a, a, within the joint staff in the Pentagon 
a, uh, a unit that is protecting against Chinese uh, infiltration, cyber infiltration, which is more focused on stealing uh, secrets. But as I walked out of the Pentagon uh, last night, I actually was talking to one of the members of that team who said that, well, basically they had stolen everything, so we're just preparing ourselves for the next wave of innovation that, um, to right. try and protect that. Yeah. So that didn't make me feel any better, but, um, but that's what they're focused on. So Jim Mattis did have a pretty big uh, role in, in setting uh, out, even without the presidential uh, authority, uh, a way to combat this threat. Before well, we move on to audience questions, so if you need a card to write down a question, please raise your hand and uh, the folks in the back will make sure that you uh, get a card to write down your question and pass it forward. Uh, we have a new Defense Secretary just confirmed today, Mark Esper. Yes. Is he going to keep that up? What, what you mentioned that Jim Mattis oh, put in place? I, I can't imagine that he wouldn't. In fact, if you heard him at his confirmation hearing when he was asked whether he was more along the Jim Mattis line of defense secretary or whether he was um, going to side with President Trump on everything, he actually came out on the side of Mattis, which I thought was pretty bold during a confirmation hearing. Um, <laughs> uh, but I think what's interesting at the Pentagon right now is that we have really faced an incredible vacuum for something that has, for an institution that has $738 billion, largest budget in our government, um, it is a power vacuum right now. And Mark Esper being, uh, a, being confirmed is going to help to some degree, but he's already coming in with a weak hand. Already, for the last seven months, not having a defense secretary in position other than an acting defense secretary. Uh, secretary of State Pompeo has become the power center. I saw yesterday he was down giving a speech to the VFW, not the defense secretary. It normally would be the defense secretary, veterans of foreign wars. Why is the secretary of state? Usually that's reserved for people who are running for president, president. Yeah. <laughs> which maybe he is someday, but, but it was was notable that between him and John Bolton, they have really taken the, um, the national security power. And so Mark Esper is going to have to come in and try and reestablish the Pentagon. But you know, the lights have pretty much gone out at the Pentagon in terms of uh, any sort of press briefings. I mean, we have fewer press briefings than the White House does, and that's not saying much. And, and so <laughs> well, it's been 130 days or whatever. Well, we've been, I think we've been all over a year. So um, uh, for a, a spokesman. Uh, so we're really in a very uh, unusual uh, time at the Pentagon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, talk about press freedoms. The, the Pentagon press briefing has barely been used in the last year or so. Mm -hmm. I think there was, there, was a tweet, uh, there was a tweet that I saw, um, a former advisor to Jim Mattis uh, saying, oh look, now that, that Pakistan and is in the news now, that Trump is talking about Pakistan, now finally everyone is talking about Afghanistan. And uh, one of the reporters replied to her, well, if you had a briefing about Afghanistan and you talked to us about Afghanistan, maybe we wouldn't write more about it. So it's not necessarily the press's fault that we're, we're you know, not, this, these kinds of situations like in Afghanistan are not in the news as much. It's really driven by the president and he is more often than not just doing policy by tweet. And the really scary thing about that I think is that the American people seem to really like that to the extent where the national security advisor is, is even taking up that strategy as well. He's tweeting as well. Um, there was a really interesting um, 
series of incidents that Jen will remember over the over the last week or so, um, where um, the we have this rift with Turkey um, over buying a Russian missile system. And you know, it's been coming for years. They should have been prepared for this. The Pentagon, in fact, was ready to go with the briefing, but they they stopped. They didn't were not allowed to do the briefing. They postponed it and postponed it because the president, they had to wait for the president to basically announce his policy, which he did by a tweet, I believe. So when you have a national security enterprise that's stymied by what the president is saying on Twitter and the fact that he could change his mind, and he's the only person, not anyone else on his national security staff that knows what's going to happen. So when you have a situation like that, it just really, it really shuts down the conversation. Well, Lara, I think that is a great example, actually, because first of all, not only would there have been extensive Pentagon briefings, but actually, of course, this would have been a big part of the White House press briefing itself as well, because this is a major uh, rift with a NATO ally. It's been years uh, where the United States has tried to head off uh, the Russian purchase of this. Uh, and you know, it, it, it represents, I think, all of the things that we're talking about, right? There are different uh, policy fights with different you know, specifics to them, but it just, it represents a break uh, that is sort of a non-ideological and yet quite fundamental, uh, almost systemic break with how we've run national security in the last few decades. In other words, it's not about any particular individual policy fight or even the fact that President Trump has a different uh, worldview uh, than arguably previous leaders from both Republican and Democratic parties, but that the president has also chosen to govern uh, and use his foreign policy executive authority in a way that's just simply radically different than anything uh, I think that we've ever seen. We have a question on Venezuela. Uh, Venezuela is arguably a key issue for the campaigns given the importance of Florida voters since many people who have fled Venezuela have ended up in Florida. Um, yet, in, according to this questioner, no real difference between the parties has emerged in terms of their policy approach toward Venezuela. How do campaigns differentiate themselves on this crisis? Or dare I say, are they even paying attention? It's Latin America. We don't talk about Latin America that much. Well, I don't think you're going to hear the president talking about Venezuela on the campaign trail, because when his national security team promised him that, uh, that a coup would occur, it didn't happen. And you notice they, start, they pivoted pretty quickly to Iran after that. And that's when we started hearing so much about Iran, is when the Venezuela coup didn't materialize. And, um, you know, you know it's a problem when they send the vice president down <laughs> to, to. That's when you know the president feels that whatever he's been sold in terms of a policy is not working, and um, and so I don't think you're going to hear as much about Venezuela on the campaign trail. And the some of the feeling at the time was that the president wanted to use Venezuela as an example of a socialist country that failed and and but I think it's a it's a murky situation at mm -hmm. best for a campaign issue yeah although you do still hear him you know sort of making these very outlandish claims that uh, you know any Democrat he doesn't like and this week it's these four Democratic congresswomen but it may turn back to uh, the Democratic presidential candidates essentially want to turn America into you know a socialist hellscape uh, and you know he he himself is relatively undeterred by the lack of actual results. Uh, it's something to talk about. I do think uh, it, it's an element of the rhetoric he's unlikely to let go of. Uh, but um, you know that to me is a really fascinating example of the 
uh, almost Kremlinology that we're all forced into right now, right? So you have, clearly this is a pet project of John Bolton. And how can you tell that? Well, because as Kremlinologists, you know, we don't you know, have human sources, we have Twitter now. Uh, and so we can see that, that Bolton has taken to using his Twitter feed, and it's almost exclusively about Venezuela, whereas you actually hear the president very little talking about Venezuela, and uh, Pompeo very little talking about Venezuela or tweeting about it in public statements. And so you can kind of gather that it's a, a pet project, if you will, of John Bolton. How long will John Bolton last as national security advisor? Will this project outlive his tenure uh, in the White House? In the age of America First, how can we encourage Americans to care more about foreign policy? <laughs> We've been trying to do that for 30 years. <laughs> well, I think the one thing that Americans do seem to care about, and we touched on this earlier, is bringing home the troops from the forever wars. That's That's been even on the Democratic campaign trail. That's, they, that is something that everyone seems to ag agree on. We need to end these forever wars and bring the troops home. So I think that's one way that these candidates, and President Trump as well, can reach the American people. And I think that the Democratic candidates can argue, and rightly so, that though the President has said he is bringing troops home, he hasn't actually done it yet. He hasn't actually put this into practice. Whatever he may tweet, he has not actually successfully managed to bring the troops home yet. So I think that the Democrats, uh, the contenders have reality on their side in this one. And I think that they can, if they can come up with a, a more detailed solution to, and emphasizing working with allies and partners to bring about some kind of end, um, or at least solution to these forever wars, where you have the allies and partners actually taking control of their own problems um, for in Syria, in Afghanistan, um, and bring the troops home, then I think that's a place that the the contenders can actually draw a comparison between themselves and President Trump that will actually, the American people will listen to. Well, I wouldn't count out the president bringing troops home from Afghanistan in the next year and a half. I think they're setting the table for that with the meeting with uh, the Pakistani prime minister and uh, the Taliban talks in Qatar. I mean, it's, it's a pretty high priority. So I think it would be, uh, I would expect on the eve of the election, something like that to happen, I whether think it's a good idea or not. Right. I and think Jen has debate, a good point. That That's we can true. debate. But, but, um, well, it's better than uh, nuking 10 million people, which was the other <laughs> uh, unbelievably <laughs> alarming thing that the president said yesterday, which goes back to this question of yeah, like, essentially, is foreign policy conversation actually going to end up being a proxy conversation in 2020 for what the heck was that? Uh, you know, that was really one of the most extraordinary things I've, I've really ever seen a president of the United States say. And what was fascinating about it was that he said it not once, like, you know, like as a, an aside, but several different times suggesting <laughs> that there had been a briefing <laughs> or something that had stuck in his head or that he even wanted to say, like, hey, I could nuke you, but I'm so generous, I'm uh, instead <laughs> going to hand the country over to the Taliban. Uh, which is a very interesting either or. But, you know, again, so that's one aspect, but it, it goes to, you know, this questioner's excellent point. Do we actually want Americans to care more about foreign policy in an election context or not? Uh, you know, there is a really interesting historical argument to be made that basically foreign policy really only figures into American domestic politics when something's gone terribly wrong. A 9-11 uh, you know, Exactly, situation. or a Vietnam war and that you know uh, 
is that, is that a conversation that's going to, you know, really benefit or illuminate anything other than the starkness of our national divide? So that's, that's one way mm -hmm. of looking at it. The, the other point that I think is an important one, uh, and again, I think you'll probably hear more about this, uh, and I totally agree with Jen, that, that Trump is conscious of wanting to deliver on some of these things that he thinks are popular uh, going into 2020. But the flip side is, you know, you talk to a lot of people who've spent their careers, you know, trying to understand geopolitical risk. The, the situation we're in right now is, is so unconventional uh, in that essentially the United States and our own domestic politics are arguably the biggest geopolitical risk in the world. Uh, you know, the truth is that uh, Afghanistan is, is a terrible situation, but it's been going on for 19 years. Uh, the truth is, is that nobody really expects uh, Jared Kushner to deliver Middle East peace or to change the situation radically. What's changing is the United States and the role that it plays in the world. And so there's been a weird fusion, in effect, of our domestic political conversation and the geopolitical conversation. And so, you know, it, it's just a really, really different environment going into this election than, than any, any other election. Because Boris uh, Johnson, I almost said Boris Yeltsin, I'm showing my age. Uh, because Boris Johnson just uh, uh, was chosen as the party leader in Britain and will tomorrow go before Her Majesty and ask to form a government. Um, how do you see the special relationship changing uh, because of Johnson's victory in the United States where there might be a President Biden? Well, a good example of this actually just happened in the past couple of days with, um, with Iran. So the U.S. has proposed a maritime coalition to help out with policing in the Gulf. And what we saw yesterday was the Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt saying, actually, we are going to start our own coalition to police um, Iran in the Gulf. So you've already seen, interestingly, the British government kind of breaking out and trying to go their own way in terms of in in terms of national security and 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 Iran specifically. So I think that Britain will probably try to take take a step forward and maybe assert itself a little bit more in terms of the rest of the world. Um, but I also think that they are going to need the United States. Um, and, and I think that Boris Johnson will probably try to cultivate that relationship with President Trump while at the same time trying to distinguish Britain from the rest of the world and from Europe in particular. So I think it'll be a really interesting relationship to watch, especially as we saw um, all these little kind of poking that, that they have, has been going on in between the two countries recently with the resignation of the ambassador in particular. I, don't, I think that rubbed a lot of Brits the wrong way. So I think there will be this really interesting um, sort of push and pull that we'll see between the two countries going forward. I think you'll see um, a very close relationship between Boris Johnson and Donald Trump. I think you'll get uh, Nigel Farage or somebody as the ambassador here, and you're going to see a very, it's gonna be us against the world with the Brits. But what you're also, I thought I laughed when you said that the Brits and the French had set up their own um, maritime protection uh, group because there was a great tweet from one of the senior uh, British national security advisors saying, but the U.S. is the only one with any assets. <laughs> so, you know, and look how, it, how well did uh, the Brits do in terms of protecting their ships going through. So right now, now the U.S. is saying, hey, we're going to lead from behind. We're not actually going to put our warships out there and escort ships. 
So I think it's very much a, uh, it's a mess in the Strait of Hormuz, and I think the Iranians are having a great time poking at all, and they're going to create divisions, and they'd love to bait the president into some sort of military action, and it's no coincidence that there were reports that uh, some of the, his chief advisors and some of them on my own network had told him the only way to lose the next election is to start a war with Iran. So the president's very aware of that, and I think you're going to see um, they're going to take this brinkmanship right up to the line and not any further. So I just, I agree with Jen totally on the analysis on the Iran side. Um, I would say when it comes to uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson, which is almost as unlikely uh, three words uh, or four words as President Donald Trump, um, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the interesting trick for him is, uh, you know, what does it mean to embrace Donald Trump? Uh, and. Uh, Britain desperately needs the United States if it's going to pursue the Brexit strategy that Johnson uh, has promised. And remember, he has promised uh, a Brexit by Halloween, October 31st. The exact Brexit deal proposed by Theresa May failed three times. There's nothing at all on the table right now that has any better prospects of passing parliament. And just because he's won election as the Conservative Party's leader uh, does not, in fact, change the numbers. If anything, it may harden uh, some of the opposition to uh, the Tories' Brexit plans as uh, his opponents push for a new general election. And so the question that I have is, now that he's gotten the position of prime minister due to help from Donald Trump, who took the very unusual step of essentially intervening in, in British domestic politics and pushing openly for Boris Johnson, elevating him even over his interlocutor at the time, Prime Minister May. That's, that's obviously not a normal uh, intervention in another country's politics. What is Boris Johnson going to get out of Donald Trump? That is really not clear at all, and that's going to be fascinating because uh, Britain is desperate for a new free trade agreement with the United States, a bilateral agreement that would help to ease the pain of Brexit. There's no significant signs, and frankly, there's basically zero election year prospects uh, that the United States would be able to deliver on that. So my question is, like, for all of you to watch very closely, uh, is Boris Johnson disappointed in what a bear hug from, from Donald Trump means? Okay, we have time for two more questions, and as you can see, I have more than two, two questions here. Um, but I, I will combine the media question as a, as a final question. But there is one question about uh, what can the next president do in the next term to repair American leadership on the world stage? And that, the assumption behind that question is that you're unhappy with current American leadership on the world stage. But, you know, does American leadership need repairing? Back to your point about how interested are Americans actually in foreign policy? Well, for starters, he could fill all the vacancies at the Pentagon and the State Department. That would be a good start. Um, aside from that, you know, he could, I mean, the, the real question is, does, does he want to, right? Does, it, does he want to really be, does he want to take us away from what he's been doing now, which is more America first, right? Does he want to really be a leader on the world stage and do the American people understand that and do the American people want more of that now too? Oh, go ahead. Well, I mean, I just, I think your point is actually an interesting, you know, way of phrasing the question in that, uh, what does it mean to have, right now we have a, a very, very unpopular president. Uh, before we had a very popular president. Many of the problems are very similar, right? There's you a mean overseas. Yeah, exactly, internationally. Well, also domestically. Mm -hmm. We have a very unpopular president. 
but again, what does that mean? You know, it's not necessarily the case that uh, because our partners in Europe don't like Donald Trump, uh, you know, the UK is a great example. He, Donald Trump is extremely unpopular uh, in Great Britain, even among uh, many conservative voters, uh, you know, but there's still a great interest in a national interest uh, in the UK in working with the United States. Uh, we, they don't have uh, an alternative to go anywhere in terms of security. So, you know, the question of consequences and, you know, viewing international relations as a popularity contest is, is challenging, right? You know, Europe didn't like George W. Bush because of the Iraq War. Uh, they loved Barack Obama uh, as the anti-Bush. Uh, obviously, many of our traditional partners in Europe are very down on President Trump in the first year of his um, presidency, there were only, I think, a small handful, maybe even like three countries in the world where President Trump was more popular than Barack Obama. Russia, Israel, not sure where else. What are the consequences of it? Is it something that's going to cause uh, Donald Trump or even uh, a Democratic successor to make policy? I'm, I'm skeptical. I think it's a lagging indicator, not a leading indicator. But I think, I think what we're not, uh, or we're coming around to realizing, is that more and more leaders around the world are starting to look more like Donald Trump, and that Donald Trump is not an aberration. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is, we are in a period where more and more countries are looking towards strong men, uh, and, and so, I'm, I, you know, I think the presumption that um, that there'll be this return to normalcy is is really a presumption. Well, I will wrap up with uh, there are three different media-related questions here, and we unfortunately don't have time to ask all three and to, and give each uh, each a chance to answer all three. So I'm going to put them out there, and you pick which one you want to answer. Um, if you could advise uh, federal government officials working on countering foreign. Uh, interference in the elections, how would you suggest combating the disinformation? And I'm going to do a commercial for CSIS because we have one report already out on the gray zone and another report coming out uh, later this week on gray zone activities, which is what countering foreign interference in an election basically boils down to. It's, it's that area between diplomacy and full-on war warfare. But how would, you know, what would you say if you want to fight back against this? That's, that's one question. Mm. Um, uh, you talked earlier about the lack of democratic foreign policy priorities. Uh, what about journalists choosing to focus on issues such as China, Russia, election security? And then finally, what might a federal government role in fostering sustainable local media look like? Which is not a point we talked about, um, but local media is certainly very important. Yeah, yep. that last point I think is really, really important and kind of goes back to something that I was saying earlier about the state of journalism. I mean, I think that one of the biggest problems today and one of the things that is causing the great polarity in this nation is the fact that there just aren't as many journalists covering these local issues anymore and they're not cover and there's not as many journalists covering issues in nuanced ways anymore in particular and that that's not just local journalism that's every piece of journalism that's foreign policy as well you know breaking it down into simple terms for clickbait that they think people want to read so i mean it's a difficult question because can does is there a role for the government to play in 
prop giving some of these journalistic um, efforts money? Is there is there a role that they can play in sponsoring young journalists? I, I think you get into kind of gray area when you talk about the government um, funding some of these publications. That seems very un-American. Um, but I think that the government can do more to maybe sponsor young journalists, um, sponsor programs for young journalists to uh, maybe meet older journalists that are more experienced and know how to do this well. So I think it's a difficult question, but one that's definitely worth exploring. I actually don't think there's a lack of young people who want to be journalists. I think the problem is that there aren't, that the, we have so many newspapers that are failing and places where local news organizations are going under and closing that really the only model that I see working is not a government-sponsored um, kind of journalism because A, that's not going to be trusted and certainly in this current environment. But what uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer has done is you have foundations who are buying newspapers in, import in cities where uh, and so if we get away from the profit incentive and start to decide on both sides of the aisle that a shared set of facts and good journalism is something we, we believe in, then these foundations like the Gates Foundation and others, everyone can, it's like adopt a city, adopt a, a newspaper, and let's get back to good local reporting. I've been involved with a group uh, called Report for America that started a year ago. Uh, it's based on uh, the same model as Teach for America, getting young people to go out to places um, where there aren't journalists located. So, and, and so we go through, we had something like um, 8,000 applications for 80 positions. And these are all young people who want to be journalists. And we could fund uh, 80 and through some great grants that are coming through from foundations like the Pew Foundation. Uh, they are going out to the border. They're going out to Appalachia. They're going out to, um, to places in West Virginia that haven't had journalists. And so we have to take these models. And I think we have to decide that journalism is worth saving. And, and it has to, there has, we have to take the profit incentive out of it. So I think that is fantastic. And by the way, Jen's work in that group, that's a really, it's a great new model. And I, I think the crisis in local journalism is real. And it's, it's probably even more serious than, than you've thought about. But in terms of what we're talking about today, in terms of uh, you know, America's role on the world stage and how the crisis in our democracy affects it, that's, that's what I would leave you with. Because I do think uh, these are related, uh, but they are slightly different things. Uh, and I do, I do think that we're having a crisis uh, both uh, internationally and inside our democracy. And the war on journalism and the war on truth is part of it. And it's very hard and even astonishing to say that. But um, you know, it's not, it's not a partisan thing to say that. It's, it's simply something I never expected in my lifetime. And uh, you know, I spent four years uh, in Moscow as the Washington Post bureau chief, along with my husband. Uh, during the period when Vladimir Putin came to power. And, and I have to tell you that if you had told me, and that was less than 20 years ago, that I would be living in Washington 20 years later and the President of the United States would be calling journalists enemies of the people. And because we were such a divided country, there would be people who said, don't pay attention to it and it doesn't matter. Uh, and uh, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, come on, folks. You know, we're better than that. Uh, and we are having a crisis in values, and 
you know, believe me, journalists uh, who are worth their salt uh, have spent a lot of time uh, taking a piece out of Democrats and Republicans. Uh, it's not a partisan thing. It's an American thing to say that we're having a crisis in our country if the President of the United States calls journalists enemies of the people. So when I lived in Russia, there's a phrase called vrag naroda, and that means enemy of the people. And that is the sentence that was used to condemn millions of people to the gulag. Okay, enemies of the people. There is no mistaking what that means, where that phrase comes from, and the fact that the president is using a Stalinist term to refer to journalists is something that uh, is, in fact, making the United States of America today uh, a geopolitical crisis. Now, does it mean the end of the world? Does it mean, uh, no, does it come from nowhere? Absolutely not. Jen's point is super important and well taken, which is to say that Trumpism is not a phenomenon uh, that is confined to Trump or to the United States. Uh, we've seen a global trend over the last 13 years, according to Freedom House, in which the number of democracies around the world has declined over the last 13 years. So obviously, we're living in a moment of time that you know people like me didn't expect when we graduated from college uh, at the period of the end of the Cold War and what we thought was a global march toward democracy. So. You know, I just leave you with that big picture context because yeah, I don't know the right answer uh, and it's, it's kind of disconnected in many ways from our traditional conversation about Iran or Afghanistan or North Korea. Those are important and valuable conversations. This other conversation is kind of this big uh, wild uh, elephant in the room, if you will. But thank you so much uh, to you, Beverly, and to, to everybody here tonight. And I really thank appreciate Thank you that. all. And before you go, I should note that Helene Cooper from the New York Times was supposed to join us on this panel, on this panel tonight. And as the life of the journalist will tell you, um, she was called at the last moment to uh, do a work trip to New York, so she wasn't able to join us tonight. But she did send her apologies. She really did want to be here tonight. But uh, thank you all very much. And as a former local reporter, I can't tell you how much I believe that local journalism is critical in this country. Um, it has nothing to do with what we're here to talk about tonight, but the Miami Herald is the sole reason that Jeffrey Epstein is in jail. Yeah. <laughs> so, Thanks again, and for all of you fans of Smart Women, Smart Power, we're taking the month of August off, and we'll be back with you with more events coming in the fall, and I hope you'll be able to join us then. Thanks again. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.